Hello, welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Serena Chen. And I'm Sophia Friends. Today, we're going to talk about conspiracy theories and fake news. You've probably heard the idea of fake news. It's become so popular, it's basically a meme. Other memes that started off as quite legitimate conspiracy theories include the idea that jet fuel can't melt steel beams. Can it? Oh my god. What is the melting temperature of steel? Does, do scientists truly know how steel melts? So we're going to talk about a whole range of conspiracy theories, about different news outlets, what journalism looks like today, which is a favourite topic of ours you may have picked up, and what that means for you and us as individuals trying to figure out the truth from the incredible amount of lies that are out there, trying to convince you to do something, say something, vote a particular way or buy something. But first, we're going to start with Avril Lavigne. Yeah, so um, Sophia brought this to my attention just the other day about her favourite conspiracy theory. Yes. This conspiracy theory basically says Avril Lavigne died after her first album and she was replaced by a doppelganger who looks exactly like her. And it's, I think it's a way to explain like her striking personality shift between her (laughs) first and second albums and like her third and fourth and I'm not sure how many albums she's got now. She has a number. I mean, like, so the big thing about Avril Lavigne is, like, I think most people know her for Skater Boy. Mm. And then probably after that, Girlfriend would be one of her most popular songs. And you might know, if you've heard them, that they're somewhat different songs. Around the time that Avril Lavigne put out Girlfriend, the one with the chorus that's, hey, hey, you, you, I can be your girlfriend, um, she hit her weeaboo phase like a ton of bricks and put out Hello Kitty, which uses some of the most egregious uh, cultural appropriation of Japan, the likes of which haven't been seen since, what was it, um, Gwen Stefani put Gwen out Stefani. Harajuku Girls? Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Harajuku Girls is a poppin' song, but oh my God, Gwen Stefani. And so that just, that's quite different to how angsty she was in her first and even her second albums. And so this idea, this theory that came out of apparently a blog in Brazil, was that at some point during that time, um, the theory states in 2003, uh, Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by a doppelganger that had been used previously by the album label to help her avoid paparazzi. So doppelganger is already there, already looks enough like Avril to fool the paparazzi. She was just slipped into place. And this blog post um, has like many different features of Avril Lavigne that have like changed and no longer look like Avril and how her nose looks different and how her mouth looks mm. different and cites those alongside the idea that you know, she suddenly started making incredibly different music as a conspiracy that Avril Lavigne died and that has been covered up. And it is, to be honest, one of my favourite conspiracies, um, partly because just like... It would explain a lot. Intensely <laughs> harmless. Well, I mean... <laughs> oh, that too. Um, but it's like, it's intensely harmless, right? Like, when you think about conspiracy theories, like chemtrails and fluoride is going to, yeah. like, control your brain, or Bush did 9-11, there's effects associated with believing in each of those conspiracy theories, and there's effects associated with, like, a large number of people believing in those theories, Avril Lavigne being dead, like, I don't think she cares if a lot of people think she's secretly a doppelganger named Melissa. Like, I think Avril Lavigne's good. So the research that I did for this episode was basically listening to her first three albums. I really loved Avril Lavigne. It was great. It was a good time. Good time in my life. But, like, 
It's such a bizarre theory, and the thing that was just the punchline of this conspiracy theory was that uh, eventually the guy who authored the theory, who authored the blog post, is now claiming Avril Lavigne never died. Like she was never <laughs> replaced by a lookalike. And, um, and he said that the theory was cooked up as an experiment to explain how, with the right information, you can make anyone on the internet believe anything. <laughs> like, that's just the the beautiful cherry to top off this entire conspiracy. And like people still hundred percent believe Avril Lavigne is dead and has been replaced. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I mean you look on her YouTube videos and it's hard to tell who's doing it like as a joke and who's doing it quite legitimately. But there'll be comments saying like it's okay, Melissa, like we know it's you. But it's it's like you can you can see why. Because when you throw enough information at someone it doesn't have to be compelling you just it's kind of like an assault of information and like anti-vaxxers still exist uh 9-11 truthers still exist like there's people still out there that believe the government puts fluoride in our water to subdue the populace even though these things have been proven again and again to be false like it's compelling enough well and i mean like something i find kind of personally insulting is like there are a lot of people out there who believe that scientists have found a cure for all cancers and we're just hiding it mm. and it's like mate like i yeah i've known people who've had cancer like if i knew how to fix that trust me i would <laughs> yeah this is something that gets me which is um conspiracies as strange and bewildering and ridiculous as they might be they tend to fall otherwise perfectly rational people. And that's that's the thing that gets me. Well, there's sort of there's two different ways that essentially you are inclined to believe things. Um, and one of them is, like you said, the assault of information. So if you ever go and read anything about like this weird new protein supplement that'll make your life better, those 10 weird tricks to a flat belly, all of that, they'll just keep talking and keep mm. providing you with information. And like the longer you listen to something and the longer essentially you invest time in something, a little switch flicks in your brain that goes, I've invested enough time in this, it must be true. Oh my God, that's how infomercials work. <laughs> essentially, yeah. Um, and the other way it happens is it gets you nodding along. So you'll see this with like con people. I don't want to say con men, but con people really doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, people who are trying to con you, they will start with something that you agree with. And, you know, this will, you'll see this with um, people who practice homeopathy. Is that they'll start mm. with like, you know, it's really important to be hydrated. And you're like, yep, yep, seems legitimate. Yep, you're <laughs> nodding along. You're like, yeah, all of these things I agree with. Vitamins are important. True. Mm -hmm. And at the end, it's like, you need this like heavily diluted piece of aquamarine crystal because when you hold it in one hand it means your other hand is stronger and it's like hold on how did we get here right it's the boiling a frog technique right yeah, yeah yeah and like if you agree with every step you're quite likely to believe with the end step i had a situation where i was quite sick in my um second to last year of high school and the doctor was like super dismissive when we went to her and so something me and my mom did is we went to a naturopath and she gave us a whole spiel about how like she treats health and doctors treat sickness and it's like all right cool calm down <laughs> um and then she gave me a long talk about how white bread was poison and i should never eat chocolate again uh <laughs> which i think is the point at which me and my mom were like oh okay nope. this person's a hack <laughs> um time to get out of there but like essentially what she did and i think 
because she was probably very, very canny, is she gave me vitamin supplements, which is like, that's a good way to get like skeptical mm. people onto your side is be like, vitamins are important. And skeptical people are generally like, yeah, vitamins are important. Minerals are good. Mm. And then when they weren't working, we went to see her again and she made me hold magnesium tablets in one hand and then tried to pull my fingers apart on the other hand and then was like, oh, see, I can pull them apart really easily. That means it won't work. Um, uh... And this was... So she worked in a pharmacy. Okay. And this time we went to see her, we were standing in a pharmacy. So I'm standing surrounded by, like, medical equipment going, like, yeah, this is legit. Like, I'm surrounded by, like, things that I see and I recognize as being legitimate medical things. And then Mm. she started doing basically witchcraft. And it's like, oh, uh (laughs) uh-oh. We've gone somewhere bad with this. Um, And I think about that quite a bit because on the one hand, like, I think it very much reflects the kind of people – who do turn away from, like, quote-unquote traditional medicine. Medicine. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's people who, are, like, haven't pushed away by mainstream medicine or people who are desperate. And I think, like, in that instance, like, I was having severe muscle pains, like, the worst periods of my life. Like, I was tired all the time. I was sleeping, like, 16 hours a day or something. So, like, yeah. in that instance, like, me and my mum were kind of desperate. And so we went to this woman who use my chakras or something in some way and like absolutely this is the other thing that really shits me about alternative medicine practitioners is they will often just steal ideas from religions and cultures that they have no understanding of no understanding Mm. of the meaning of and then use them like because they're mystical and foreign they're somehow true and i just like Mm. i have so little time for that i have so little time for someone some like white woman who's never lived anywhere except Tauranga telling me about my chakras. That got, like, that meandered a bit, but <laughs> alternative medicine annoys me. Like, I think I think a lot of the time vague ill health can be due to vitamin deficiencies or trace mineral deficiencies, and often that's not the first thing that doctors check unless it's something like iron or vitamin D. I think your illnesses can often be made worse if you are deficient in things. I think if you have enough vitamins and enough minerals, that's a really good thing. And I think a lot of the time naturopaths look at that in the first instance, which Mm. medical doctors, from my experience, often don't. You bring up a really good point just before um, when you said that, like, nothing was working and you're at a point of desperation. And at that point, like, you're willing to try anything. Because when you look at conspiracy theories and the origins of them a lot of them do come from quite tragic places a lot of them are around tragic events and a part of me wonders if it's a way to cope with tragic events because things in life happen and usually without good explanations usually without good rationale things just happen and when those things are really terrible sometimes it feels better to construct a narrative that makes sense I think as well, like, it's often a way to explain things that have happened. If you have family members who died in 9-11 or people who are otherwise affected by it, it's much easier to see it as an evil cover-up than an understandable reaction to the foreign policy of the United States from the 80s onwards. Mm. It's much easier to look at it and say, like, these are some, like, evil people that we couldn't have predicted coming, if that makes sense. And I think, like, a lot of it is explaining the world around you in the same way like myths and legends were right like in the same way like thor the thunder god was there like 
making thunder and lightning happen in the same way like Poseidon is why you had storms at sea like chemtrails are why you're tired all the time ah <laughs> oh, that's why <laughs> um but I mostly I mostly wanted to bring up the topic of conspiracy theories right now in particular because we are at this kind of weird point in the cultural zeitgeist where it seems like everyone including people who are authorities on different things like you know, the mainstream news. It seems like everyone is questioning reality itself. We're seeing conspiracy theorists featured on a lot of mainstream news outlets. Um, Wikipedia, for the last year, maybe two, if I remember correctly, has been systematically under attack by alt-right and MRA movements. And it seems like we're at a point, I mean, especially after America's election last year, where everyone's like, what is truth? What are facts? Well, I mean, we touched on this in the um, pay gap episode as well, mm. right? Like, often the response you get to talking about the gender pay gap is no one can possibly believe that that still exists. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, there are numbers that say it, it does. <laughs> what are you doing? I think as well, like, there's so many possible sources of information. I think it has actually become simultaneously very difficult and very easy to be a journalist. I would say much more difficult. Well, like, in the sense of getting a source to say something you can write an article about is easy. Yeah, but is that journalism? Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Shots fired. But, like, checking that source and actually doing your due diligence as a journalist, like, that's very, very difficult. I think as well, like, the fact that many news organisations are quite, um, if not monopolies, often duopolies and often very anti-competitive. Like in New Zealand, it's predominantly Fairfax Media. There are like two independent newspapers and they're both pretty bad. I mean, I say that with love. The ODT is wonderful, but <laughs> sometimes their sub-editing could use a little bit more oversight. Please. Because any paper of that you can pick up and find like 15 different typos. Yeah. I love it, but oh my God. But equally, it's one of the last bastions of independent media in New Zealand, which is kind of terrifying to think about when you consider that the bulk of media was um, NZME, I think. I'm not sure. And then I think Fairfax bought them out. Yeah, the um, two biggest media companies did a merger. Woo, that's a great idea. Which seems incredibly anti-competitive <laughs> and like it shouldn't be allowed to happen. But okay, New Zealand. But I think this is one of like the big problems is that Media these days, whether you're a mainstream newspaper or a mainstream like television show or you're a blogger or you're like a small magazine, mid-sized magazine somewhere, all of our media sources these days, they are incentivized by eyeballs and advertising dollars. And this kind of incentive incentivizes the journalists and the editors and publishers to bring out sensationalist stories. I think there are different pressures depending on where you are. So I Mm -hmm. think for mainstream, and like by mainstream I mean things in big cities or national papers or websites or whatever, that's definitely true. I think for local papers particularly, and that's why, you know, the ODT and, oh, there is somewhere else that recently bought themselves back from Fairfax and it's just escaping me right now in New Zealand. They are driven by local stories. Mm. And it's why you go down to Otago and there's like a page about a cat that hangs out at a soccer ground, right? Like, this was a three-day story that I saw last time I was in Dunedin. It was fantastic. But, like, they're driven by local interest. And I think almost that is a more 
pure way of doing journalism. I don't think you can really, like you can rank journalism by purity to a degree. And I think local journalism is incredibly important. And in Australia, that'd be regional journalism. And because it's not as driven by sensationalism, I think there's still a degree of that that exists, but it's much less so than in major cities and in national newspapers. Yeah, I guess the tug of war between different variables there is that while locally these newspapers are much less sensationalist and do much better work, they what I'm trying to say is like it's hard to make a, a sustainable paper that makes money because the whole system is uh, reliant on advertising. It's hard to essentially turn a profit or to even sustain yourself without focusing on clicks, focusing on eyeballs, focusing on sensationalist headlines. So my mum is a journalist continues to be a journalist despite having stepped down from her position at the Bay plenty of times quite recently and it's been very very interesting talking to her about how journalism has changed since she started because she started when she was 16 and I won't say the year (laughs) um, at the Wanganui Chronicle and that was because she went in for an interview wanting to be a photographer and the editor who was interviewing her said I've just given the photography job to the person that's walked out the store do you want to be a journalist And mum was like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Seems all right. Quite good at English. Sounds good. I think talking to her is definitely where I got ideas about journalistic purity from. Mm. Particularly, like, and this is where I have my bias towards local stories. Like, she spent a long time working at the um, Chronicle, the Wanganui Chronicle. She spent a while um, doing some work with a caddy caddy advertiser with, like, the Bay of Plenty Times, which admittedly isn't, like, super local, but, oh, according to people from Auckland, it definitely is that knowledge of community and this sort of harks back to what we talked about in the last episode, which is that community that you can build up around local stories and local ideas, I think is really beautiful. And I think it's something we are at risk of losing as more and more newspapers move towards the internet. Like I am legitimately worried that one day the Caddy Caddy advertiser, beautiful, beautiful rag that it is like may (laughs) one day no longer exist. Like, there are some local papers in Tauranga that have shut down. There are a bunch of local papers throughout New Zealand that no longer exist that used to. And that's partly because of the move towards getting our news from social media. Yeah. A lot of people get the bulk of their news from Facebook. And, like, to be honest, the only news website I check, like, often is stuff. Mm-hmm. I check it when I get homesick. <laughs> the worry there is really similar to – I was just – Oh my gosh, I can't finish the sentence. Excuse me. Um. (laughs) Are you just having like a lot of feelings about local media right now, Serena? I am having a lot of feelings about local media (laughs) and journalism in general. Like, it's incredibly important and journalism is facing this mammoth of an obstacle, which is um, sustainability and, you know, getting paid to be journalists and to, to report the news and to keep different people, organizations, companies, governments accountable. And that's, you know, I feel like that's a that's a problem that's not only had by journalists, but I'm thinking about places on the internet, like even within the internet, places that are communities of subculture. I'm thinking about like geocities, about like <laughs> um, those old forums that are that were like super niche and counterculture um tumblr even like i'm legitimately worried that tumblr is gonna go down very soon 
because it's these places of subcultures, countercultures, these like niche little pockets on the internet and also in the real world that doesn't attract eyeballs, you know. It, and it seems like more and more these days, everything is moving towards this kind of advertiser business model. I really do worry what this kind of all-encompassing business model will do. My question for you then is, are you particularly concerned that things that exist on the internet, so things like GeoCities, some like old niche forums, Hmm. when they die, there is no trace of them? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's things like the Wayback Machine, which... It's essentially like an archiving project. And I say project because there is no way to archive the entire internet, right? But they do a really good job at archiving some of the more well-known websites. Oh, I'm remembering this website. Oh my god, Jeremy was what it was called. And it did comedy articles, um, Ella Cracked Style. And they had to shut down. And then it was gone. (laughs) It wasn't archived anywhere. I guess like the only modern equivalent I can think of is Vine shutting down. Because usually when, or usually when like anything shuts down, everyone's very quick to archive everything. Or they'll they'll say, hey, you know, we'll put this data somewhere else um, for you. You've got X amount of time. People joke about how the internet is forever and it's permanent, but a lot of it really isn't. And I think like thinking long term, thinking about like, and like it sounds to a degree arrogant to be like, well, we'll leave for future generations. But like realistically, I can go back and find copies of the Bay of Plenty Times from like the early 1900s and microfiche files and told on a library and I've done that. You can't do that with Twitter? I'm not sure if you'd want to, but like the fact remains that someone might at some point want to. The thing that concerns me more about having um, having journalism on the internet is that the record can be changed now. Yes, you you can possibly go back and find an article from 2003, but it's very easy to to edit that article, to change the the tone of the article, to change the setup of the article, to change the narrative. Whereas with newspapers, you, you know, you go down to your local library, you get out an archived piece of newspaper from 1995. Uh, it's very difficult to change that. So I, there is a small and building worry about how current history is being recorded digitally and how how susceptible that is to alteration in the future. Yeah, I mean, there are increasing numbers of scientific journals that are only publishing online. And Mm. as much as I love the access I have to that, it worries me that if something like WannaCry, for example, like takes off and people have to stop using the internet even for a couple of days, like suddenly we just won't have access to scientific knowledge. It's a double-edged sword of sort of like privacy and security almost. Like this idea that you might want things to be relatively private so for example with a lot of um, closed access scientific journals like you need a particular password or an institution login to access them and that's the privacy side of things but like the security of ideas and concepts and research like and obviously I'm particularly interested in research for the future that worries me as well and I feel like if things are disseminated more we're less likely to lose them. I think about this quite a lot in um in the context of genomics, which is actually like the piece that I ended up getting published in the best Australian science writing of 2016, Mm. no big deal, I'm amazing, (laughs) was about like the privacy of genomes because it's great that we can sequence genomes, it's great that we can upload them to the internet and people everywhere can access them, but those things can be de-anonymized and they can be accessed 
buying anyone and that's kind of a concern but then the flip side of that is so much of our data now is only digital Mm. and I've read enough post-apocalyptic science fiction (laughs) to be very worried about that (laughs) yeah it's a it's a flip side easy to create easy to write easy to disseminate and also very easy to destroy Mm -hmm. yeah and people are getting better at hurting it um as the what was what was the most recent one called do you remember I honestly, I've lost track. Ransomware is kind of, I liken it to like, I'm pretty close to the hospital. So I hear a lot of ambulance sirens outside. And that's what I think of when I think of ransomware. It's like, hey, the world is on fire again. I don't care anymore. Well, there was one um, quite recently that I mostly caught because I was awake at two in the morning because I was still pretty jet lagged. Um, that hit like a bunch of banks in Europe and things like that. Yeah. And apparently utilize a backdoor that had been found by the NSA. So it's like, oh, good. Oh, great. <laughs> good stuff. But apparently I'm not a crypto ex- expert at all. Um, so are you, do you know the name of, is probably the mm-hmm. better question to ask. Do you know the name of those plugins that like Chrome can have to help determine whether something's fake news or not? No, no, not at all. This is something that I was going to ask you as well, is like, how do we police fake news if one were to police fake news? Like, how does that even work? I mean, I haven't used any of the plugins, and they are available, and the people I know that use them speak very highly of them. There are plugins to that will flag something if it's from an unreliable website. They're not perfect. I think generally what you can do is use your common sense. Yep. A lot of the time, particularly with news relating to Trump, uh, if it seems too good to be too true, it probably is. Like, if you're so incredibly excited by the news that he's, like, eating the head off a Barbie doll while laughing maniacally in front of a raging fire, probably not true. Having said that, who knows? Actually, no, this is something I do want to touch on. The left gets particularly happy with, like, news about Trump doing ridiculous things. And Russia conspiracies? Well, okay. Mm. I'm going to get to that. So it's things like the Time magazine cover that he faked. The, like, all the stuff about Mar-a-Lago. Like, whatever the most recent thing was about fighting CNN. They don't talk constructively about what is actually happening in the government very much and obviously like I can only say so much not being an American not being based in America like I feel like this is very much a conversation for people who are directly affected by this to have Hmm. but it concerns me that the bulk of the discourse I see going on is like Trump did this ridiculous thing I mean he did but he's also removing your healthcare so call your senator please (laughs) like what are you doing (laughs) Well, this is harking back to the whole, like, sensationalism and eyeballs versus substance thing, right? It's like, it's funner for people to make fun of this guy. It's it's more interesting and more exciting to point at him and say, what a narcissistic idiot, than it is to say, read through his healthcare bill, you know? And I mean, I think there can be parallels drawn with how Australia treated Tony Abbott after he ate a raw onion. Like... (laughs) I forgot about that. I think Australia has a much better sense of humour about itself and the Prime Minister holds a relatively less amount of power compared to the President. But, mm-hmm. like, when he ate a raw onion, it was like, look at Tony, this, like, jolly old, like, chap who's a bit of a laugh. Like, how ridiculous is he? He ate a raw onion. Oh, he did it again. Wild. <laughs> While completely ignoring the fact that, like, he was vocal against, like, vaccination. Like, he hasn't vaccinated his daughters. The fact that he has made... He made the situation on Nauru and Manus Island way worse for asylum seekers. There were probably many other things Tony Abbott did that were fucked up. But what you hear from friends who are 
more left wing or indeed central or indeed anyone in Australia while Tony Abbott was prime minister, you hear the fact that he ate an onion and how ridiculous was that? And that concerns me. I mean, it's concerning, but also it, it's such an ingrained part of human nature to want the shiny, to want the candy, to want, you know, the stuff that's fun, but bad for us over the stuff that has substance, but is boring, but it's good for us. Like prunes. Like prunes and spinach. Whole grain bread. Yes, whole grain I've bread. I've been doing some very None good of that white lately. bread. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um... I mean, I think it's also to an extent like self-preservation. You can't spend all of your time being sad and or outraged. Um, for example, no. in Australia about asylum seekers and New Zealand about any of the changes that are going to occur to the unemployment benefit or in America about healthcare. Like, you just can't. Your soul would die. And yeah. so you spend your energy being, like, almost faux outraged or laughing at things that are ridiculous. And that makes you feel better. Yeah, it's... Interesting. Um, so Netflix, uh, a while back, was a DVD company. I didn't know this. This was a surprise to me at the time. But um, I always thought they were streaming. But we, they used to be a company that like sent you DVDs, tried to figure out what movies you might like kind of thing. And they were just about to start their streaming service. So they did this customer survey experiment kind of thing, asking people, what movies do you want to see? And the movies they receive from people are, are really like in depth, critically acclaimed movies. Like, you know, like I, you know, I want to see this this amazing award winning art film, art house film kind of thing. Doctor Strange Love. Yeah, stuff stuff like that. But as it turns out, what people actually wanted to see was essentially essentially fluff, right? Yeah. Like, um, you come home. It's been a long day at work. The movie where the woman falls in love with a ghost at Christmas, <laughs> which I've watched three times. It's amazing. Stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or like a light comedy, something, <laughs> a brainless romantic comedy or something. Like, Thank you for being more vague than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, here is the exact example you need. It's That's a very awesome. good film. It's called The Spirit of Christmas. Continue. <laughs> is it on Netflix? It is. Yeah. Well, I, I may That's have to That's why I watched it three times. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, what people thought they wanted versus what they actually wanted in the moment was completely different. And like this is why I say it. it's concerning that we don't seem to care enough to read through policy that really will hurt not only us, but our friends, our family, our acquaintances, our neighbours, the people in our community. But in a lot of ways, it's just who we are. We we know what's good for us, but in the moment, it's just funnier to laugh at Tony Abbott eating a raw onion. We want fluff and we want things that agree with us, which is why there are so, so many left-wing people who really like John Oliver and, like, Stephen Colbert. They need to start watching Sambi. She has the best show. She's very good. She's the best show. show. But even then, there's a difficulty where she is saying a lot of the time things you already agree with. Yeah. And I think it is really important, and Lisa definitely touched on this um, last episode again, like, it's really important to challenge your own ideas. Because some of your ideas might secretly be shit. Or publicly be shit. Yeah, I mean, like, like this is a very um, facetious example. So until I was 21, I genuinely thought that all ink was made in squid farms in the Mediterranean. That's very specific. Okay, look, I've worked it out. 
And this was just like my brain had just gone like, no, nah, this is true. Okay, let's go. Is this a Sophia branded conspiracy theory? I mean, not even that. I just like, I thought it was true. Like, I just never looked it up because I was like, I know where it comes from. Squid. Squid farms. Because I knew that printer ink was the most expensive liquid, like so much more expensive than blood, um, <laughs> which is a weird comparison to make, but okay. And so I was like, so clearly it must be hard to make. I know that like when I lived in Lebanon, like, there was a lot of like a lot of Mediterranean food involved like calamari. Like clearly there's a bunch of squid around. Like people are squid fishes. So clearly there are like squid available in the Mediterranean. Squid make ink. Therefore. Printed ink would be really expensive if you had to milk a squid to get the ink. <laughs> and then, oh god, it got so good. I can't believe I was 21 when I figured out this was wrong. I mean it's pretty a theory. I also had the thought, right? Like, cause you get CMYK ink, and I'm like, okay. But when I eat beetroot, all of my excretions are purple. So presumably if you gave a squid beetroot, all the squid's excretions would be purple. Mm-hmm. And there must be other foods you can do that for, which makes CMYK like, make sense. And I assume like, this was a sort of case for like the bulk of printer inks and dyes. And then I got to a stage where I was writing my honours dissertation, and I went in to talk to um, my supervising postdoc, and I was like, oh, I need to fill this out for my methods section. Where do we get this particular ink from? Was it somewhere in the Mediterranean? And she was like, no, it's from America. <laughs> Why did you think it was the Mediterranean? Like, it came from, like, one of those big chemical factories. I'm like, what? What do you mean it comes from a chemical factory? <laughs> and I went back to my desk, and I was, like, starting to feel the wheels turn. And so I went to the Wikipedia page for printer ink, and I was like, my world is falling apart. Yeah. And, like, it was really, really difficult to have this weird niche belief about printer ink be challenged. Mm. And so, like, I have a lot of sympathy for when people are, like, struggling with having their beliefs beliefs about the world be challenged. Yeah. Even if those beliefs are, like, really, really harmful. Even if they're, like, some fuckboy who's, like, Aboriginal people are just less smart than white people. Brr. I have less sympathy for him. <laughs> like, I have less sympathy for people like that. But I do understand, like how difficult it is to realize that something that you believe so strongly and just like without ever questioning it to be true mm. is wrong. Yeah. And I guess, oh, that was a great story, by the way. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Thank <was> fantastic. <laughs> I was 21, Serena. Oh, oh that's so you good. You knew me when I realized this was wrong. <laughs> oh, it's such a cute theory too. I love it. It makes a lot of sense, okay? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm... I'm sure, like, I've had a lot of personal theories about things that were shattered one day, and and yeah, I totally get that. And I think that's, like, a big part of how conspiracy theories tend to stick, is that it gets to a point where your, not necessarily belief, but, like, your knowing, your knowledge that it is true, you know, is so bound to your past and your identity, and it gets to a point where any kind of new evidence that comes up that might prove it wrong that might counter it is suddenly a part of the conspiracy it just and it's confirmation bias on overdrive basically that's fascinating it's why like i hate to bag on atheists on every episode no no you can bag on atheists so i'm an agnostic Mm -hmm. and that's because i think there could be a lot of evidence for a god but i don't know how to consistently interpret that evidence Mm -hmm. so it's like this stuff that's happening or like these things that are classed as miracles they could be evidence for a god it could be evidence for some weird shit like i don't know Mm -hmm. there is no way to prove a negative and so atheists and particularly anti-theists it's like but you can't prove that and often they're scientists. Often they're like rationalist scientist wannabes. And they're like, no, I believe this super strongly. It's like, but you can't prove a negative. Yeah. 
at best you're like a strongly biased agnostic. Yep. Yeah. No, I I'd consider myself an atheist, but would I technically be an agnostic if I just didn't care? <laughs> I think you're agnostic if you don't care. Yeah. My view on the whole thing is I mean, everything I can experience and see and measure and touch now is the only thing I have to work off. So it would be a waste of my limited time alive to focus on things that I just can't prove right or wrong any other way. So and just I don't have time for that. I probably cast myself as a spiritual agnostic and that's because I have particular beliefs that I need to have in order for my brain to function. And it's stuff like there's a place that we go after death. And it's like, if I didn't believe in that, I would be very sad all the time. Just all the time I'd be very sad. So I believe that because it makes my life a lot easier. And I realize there's no way to prove or disprove that. Like, yeah. But it's chill. It's just like, I have to have these beliefs because otherwise I will cry constantly and never get anything done. Yeah, like basically as long as no one's harming anything else, believe whatever. This is why I don't really have a problem with the idea of religion. It's like, you know, if if that gets you through the day happy, satisfied, gives you purpose, why not? And that's why I have like a gentle affection for most conspiracy theories as well. It's like, oh, <laughs> That's cute. Oh, that belief doesn't harm anyone. You do you. Oh, Avril Lavigne is secretly Melissa. Or Melissa is secretly <laughs> Avril Lavigne or whatever... There are a bunch of people who think that Elvis is still alive. And it's like, you know what? If that makes your life better, you do it. Tupac is on an island. The thought of Tupac chilling on an island is making me pretty happy right now. So, you know. <laughs> Tupac should not be dead. <laughs> um, we haven't really talked about Snopes yet, which I feel was what you were trying to drive at when you asked me ways to, like, determine what news is fake or real. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you were fishing for Snopes. <laughs> uh, I wasn't quite fishing for Snopes, but we should mention Snopes. Um, for those who don't know, Snopes is an organization, question mark, that basically their entire purpose is to debunk conspiracy theories. They're like Mythbusters, but for the internet. Yeah, yeah. And they're really great. I don't have much discussion points around that, except for the fact that they're really great and they're a great source to go to. And if you think an email you've got is a scam, look it up on Snopes. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're good people. I guess, I don't know, when I bring up sources, trusted sources like Snopes, and this happens with, like you mentioned before, those, um, those Chrome extensions that tell you whether news is likely to be fake or not. Um, the usual response I get is, but how do I trust this person, or how do I trust this extension? Who is Snopes for Snopes kind of thing? And... Yeah, it's a really great question. I think it's very good to be critical and sort of alluding to what I talked about previously, like with the bulk of the media being owned by like one or two different companies that are typically owned by one or two people, like there's probably going to be bias in your media. You should be critical of your media. Yeah. It's a very good way to live. You should try and get your media from multiple different sources and multiple different viewpoints. Mm. But generally, like even if you accept there's a particular, say, pro-mining bias in the Murdoch press, like... (laughs) the things that they report will generally be true. And that's because if they lied a whole bunch, fewer people will buy them and they'll probably get sued. And I think like the fact that libel is a thing, is libel the Russian one? I think it is. I think libel is the Russian <laughs> one. The fact that that exists, I think is quite good defense against trusted sources, like just telling lies about people. Right, because they've built a business off of this and they're, they're legally... Yeah, if they got sued, they'd have to pay a lot of money. Um... <laughs> 
I think as well with breaking news, you need to be particularly careful. And often again, like trusted news sources like TV3 News, like TV1 News, like um, I think Channel 9 and 10 in um, Australia, they're generally pretty good. But a lot of the time people will mess up when it comes to news where like stuff is being discovered while we're talking about it. So like with the Grenfell fire in London, with like often with things in the Middle East, people will misreport um, statistics about fatalities and people injured. Mm. And that will just occur because no one has information yet. So with breaking news particularly, it's generally good to wait 24 hours and then read a trusted site. Because even your trusted sites will be trying to jump the gun, trying to be the place with the most breaking news, and they won't get the facts right. Like, you can't when something's still happening. Yeah. So I have always been a supporter of the idea that you should always do your own research. You should always get your news from, like, as many different sources as you can. You should always assume that whatever source you're getting from has some kind of bias, and you should always, you know, try and get to the bottom of that. I've always been a proponent of researching on the internet because, you know, the internet is this glorious, beautiful place with so much information that you can do your own research. But the more I think about it now, the more it seems that encouraging this kind of behavior of self-research might actually encourage less accurate perceptions of the world and of news and it might be this kind of weird like monkey paw situation where it's like you know (laughs) you're given this great power and then you go out and you just consume Breitbart and think that's (laughs) you just need to be appropriately critical of the things you're consuming and like while somewhere like Breitbart which oh god will link to a bunch of sources and be like these sources are completely legitimate we are correct in the things that we say and it's like yeah okay those are sources. Um, turns out if you read the Wikipedia page for that, it says the opposite. And things like the Guardian.com, the Daily Telegraph, mm. the Herald Sun, like any other number of newspapers or websites, even if like stuff.co.nz says something differently. Like it's just looking at a lot of different sources that say a lot of different things and recognizing which of those sources are like so flagrantly biased as to basically be unusable. I guess my concern is by encouraging people to do more self-research, do we also... Because, you know, it's like, uh, it's like that thing with Netflix again, right? It's like, ideally, I think, yeah, I'm going to research all my sources. I'm going to research what news publications I get my news from. I'm going to research, you know, who I'm listening to on social media. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do all this work. But realistically, practically, none of that actually happens. Realistically, when I am trying to get to the bottom of something, I'll open up the three top hits in Google and <laughs> decide based on that. And I'm not trying to say we shouldn't tell people to go and look at multiple sources. In fact, the opposite. But I I do wonder if this is another case of idealized behavior versus just human nature. Laziness being the human nature that we're talking about. I think the most important thing with self-research is like challenging your own beliefs and being critical of the beliefs that are presented to you. And I think to encourage self-research without including that caveat is like bad and results in people going maybe there is a feminist conspiracy (laughs) there isn't though god okay so i'm not at a debating tournament right now which is wonderful but there's one going on Mm -hmm. one of the topics of this debating tournament was that we support a men's rights movement this being debating like to me there's a very 
very clear affirmative there. And that is the men's rights movement as it currently exists, we do not support because it's Mm. trash. But men of colour, trans men, disabled men, still suffer from a huge amount of discrimination. And that's really important. And it just absolutely shits me to tears that the men's rights movement does not pay pay any kind of attention to their struggles. It's just like, for fuck's sake, oh, men's rights? Oh, you're just for, like, straight white men. Good shit. Good shit. Like, Jesus. And sometimes to the degree of not even for straight white men, it's for straight white men's angers towards feminism. (sighs) Like, even straight white men could benefit off of things like paternity leave, things like... Greater access to mental health care. Yeah, greater access to mental health care. They would benefit from things not being so gendered, with, like, occupations not being so heavily gendered as they are now. But no... No, it's it's there to just shout about how feminists are crazy. I feel that frustration, 100%. The frustrating thing about that also is that, and I'm finding this a lot with news outlets, especially those that, like, the we-must-interview-both-sides journalism, oh, Jesus. flavor of journalism, you know? It completely distorts the reality of what's happening. It completely, like, it takes a fringe view and it takes a really thoroughly tested mainstream view and it places them on the same pedestal and that that kind of narrative just frustrates me to no end. We've absolutely seen this with climate change, global warming in Australia, we've seen this with wind farm syndrome in Australia, which you might not have heard of. Sometimes when people live near wind farms, they get headaches. There was a like senator who championed wind farm syndrome in Australia who like said, no, this is a real thing. We can't build wind farms because it makes people sick. Really? Because all of these blinded studies say it doesn't. <laughs> Have you considered wind farms are good? <laughs> Do you know what that reminds me of? Have you heard of the uh, the creepy pasta that's like... Hand or hand or card or... Don't leave your fan on? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's some kind of like Korean creepy pasta story that's like um that people die from asphyxiation when they fall asleep next to a, a fan that's still going and that that was like that was a meme that spread around the internet for ages so just i mean jet fuel means. can't melt steel beams so oh my god <laughs> i think if if there were one kind of like metaphorical or even practical kind of symbol for how the internet has made our brains work is probably memes. Yeah, I mean, like, memes to an extent existed beforehand. Like, if you think about it in the context of, like, slang and how slang rose and crashed over, like, yeah. particular periods of time, I think memes are fantastic. They're just such an interesting cultural phenomenon. They really are. I sound like massivist dork saying that. Oh. No. <laughs> you are among dork friends here. That's been things of interest. We've talked about conspiracy theories. We've talked about how good Snopes is. Snopes is really good. We've talked about a lot of ideas that we've covered beforehand about what journalism looks like and what it could look like, about the impermanence of the internet. Although, don't send that mean tweet. You know that one's going to come back to you. And we've talked about the Avril Lavigne death conspiracy theory, which is still my pet conspiracy theory. I've told you an embarrassing story of how I believed that Squid made all printer ink until I was 21. And so I think we're probably going to end it about there. Remember to critically engage with media, including this media, which means you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can send us an email, castinginterest at gmail.com. You can tweet at us, we're at castinginterest. 
and we're on Facebook as Things of Interest. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend so you may also have great chats with great friends as well. Yeah. Critically analyzing media is more fun when your friends to do it. Geek out together. <laughs> um, I've been Sophia Friends. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting.